Sean Levy is back on the podcast. Every time he's got a new book out, he's kind enough to stop by and talk to us about it. Last time, it was his book of poems based on New York Times obituaries. Before that, his bestseller on Chateau Marmont. And before that, Dolce Vita Confidential. This one is called In on the Joke. It's about female comedians, not today's, but the first female stand-ups from Moms Mabley to Joan Rivers, including Phyllis Diller, Elaine May, and many others. We'll find out what joke they were in on and discover the real people behind the public personalities. He'll be reading at Powell City of Books in Portland on Wednesday, April 6th. It's always a joy to have Sean visit the podcast. Oh, Sean, welcome back to the podcast. I'm always happy to, that uh, when you're on this because you're always so good. Oh, cheers. Thank you, Tom. It's always fun. Yeah, and we even did your poetry book. It didn't have to be it didn't have to be showbiz. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot of showbiz in that book, but but it is it was a different beast and it was uh, in retrospect uh, it's it's kind of amazing to me that that lives in the world and let's see what happens. It's a different uh, metabolism books of poetry compared to these showbiz titles. Yes. Yeah, and this showbiz title. Okay, how many people have asked you what's the joke that that they're in on? Cuz it's called In on the Joke. Well, actually, you're the first. But um, seriously, the the title was we had a hard time for a long time finding the right title for this book, and the more I've lived with in on the joke, um, the more I like it, because to be in on the joke implies of being a member of a club yeah. and getting it and being sort of honored and you know part 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 of the scene, and for so long, women comedians were denied that opportunity to be in on the joke, um, I, I wound up liking it, and particularly when I saw the, the what the um, artist did with the cover treatment and put it in neon. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is the book title. So yeah, yeah. sometimes I have them before I have the first notion, and sometimes they have to grow on me. Huh. So this, when did this, uh, you know what, I, I did a piece one time for the, for the paper on um, ads that had been rejected. So, oh yeah. What were some titles that you rejected? Um, well, the original title of the proposal was "The Real Mrs. Maisels." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, can see that. Which, yeah. which was really speaking to the marketing people. <laughs> yes. Know, yes. There's a popular show about this. You might be able to sell some of them. <laughs> um, then for a while, it was called "She's a Riot," <laughs> with an exclamation point. Uh huh. Um, I wanted to call it the 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 original Queens of Comedy, but there is a, a performance film called The Queens of Comedy. And, oh. Um, we use the, uh, the original Queens of Stand-Up Comedy as a subtitle. Yeah. Um, to just, to, just to make, you know, because In on the Joke doesn't really tell you enough about what the book's about. But those, those three lasted the longest. And then, you know, there were days... Um, driving to the coast with my partner, I said to her, oh, I've got the title. It's called, Why Don't You Just Sing? <laughs> well, just in case people have not heard, uh, you, you devote chapters to Moms Mabley, Jean Carroll, Minnie Pearl, Sophie Tucker, Belvoir, Rusty Warren, and um, Phyllis Diller, Elaine May, and Tony Fields, and Joan Rivers. That's quite, that's, that's, that's quite a field. Yeah, and there are there are probably another half dozen women who get brief treatments in some of those chapters. Yeah, Hattie Noel and Lawanda Page, who are sort of um, you know spiritual daughters of Moms Mabley. Yep. 
Anne Mira is in the Elaine May chapter. Uh-huh. A woman named Jory Remus, who gave Phyllis Diller um, a lot of breaks at the beginning, is in the Phyllis Diller chapter. I tried to be as inclusive as possible, and frankly, this book got cut by about 25,000 words. Wow. Because I had whole chapters on some of the women I just named, and my editor said, you know, this is this is too much, and <laughs> I, I, I'm stubborn that way. I met my deadline. I was just over by about 20%. Jeez. That must have been awful to have to cut all that stuff. Well, it's 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 a good discipline, and and someday I'm going to learn this lesson, you know, uh, work with the outline you have, and and when you see things, um, start cutting at the outline stage and not at not at the other stage. I have found great stuff that's not in this book. Um, Jory Remus, a very obscure figure, um, she had a brief heyday as a kind of a hipster chanteuse comedian <laughs> in New York and San Francisco in the late '50s and early '60s. And she kind of disappeared, and people thought she was dead. And someone walked into a bar in the San Fernando Valley one day, and there she was at the bar, and the guy nearly passed out because <laughs> you know, he had been one of the people. And uh, among the things she did toward the end of her life, and it tells you where she was, she had a patent on a device that was a combination alarm clock and pill dispenser. <laughs> So you know those little things where you sort your yes, pills morning, yes, yes. evening, days of the week? This one was attached to an alarm clock, so it reminded you when to take your pills. What a great idea. Yeah, I know, but it also tells you, like, you know, something she felt the world needed was because she needed it herself. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jeez. God bless. Listen to that. that and, and that got, did that get cut out? That got cut. Oh, man. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> I'll tell you though, um, when I looked at at, at, at the lineup of all, all the great comedians, of course, the because I, I have to relate everything to myself, of course. <laughs> the one that that uh, that really stuck out was Phyllis Diller because I had a wonderful interview with her uh, one time um, in the eighties, and it was it was for PM Magazine, you know, Evening Magazine. Mm-hmm. And it was a TV thing, and she was wonderful. She knew why we were there. She gave us wonderful material. She was generous with her time. She knew when it was over, and <laughs> I just came away with this, 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 you know, a, 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 just a, a very warm feeling because she knew she knew why she was there, why we were there, gave us exactly what we wanted, and, and shoved us out the door. It was great. You know, Phyllis, I don't know anyone who encountered Phyllis Diller and had anything negative to say. I spoke to no one. I spoke to her son, Perry. That guy was just filled with life and and just ebullient. And I was like, boy, you know, it's a pretty good parent who generates a a child of this sort. She was a a lifelong advocate of positive thinking. You know, that mid-century American uh, descended from Norman Vincent Peale. Uh Uh-huh sort of thing and she read a book called the the magic of believing uh, claude bristol in in the late in in the mid 50s and it changed her life she quit her job and decided you know she she worked in promotions for a radio station kf sfo in Mm -hmm. san francisco Mm -hmm. and she was a mother of five she was in her mid-30s and she decided she was going to be an entertainer and she just did it uh, based on this book, and she, in her lifetime, gave away literally tens of thousands of copies of that book. Huh. 
It would take luggage on the road with her filled with copies of the book and hand it off to journalists, uh, bellhops, people she met. Um, and she really believed it. She was a positive thinker. She did all the things she thought she could do. And the positivity uh, was part of her, um, her, her offstage persona. It became who she was. That's one thing I wanted to talk to you about, because almost all of these these uh, comedians had a separate offstage persona that was nothing like they were on stage. Uh, until Phyllis, I think Phyllis is the last one uh-huh. who, who um, you know, really felt like she had to become a clown on stage. She wore the garish outfits. She had the, you know, electric shocked hair, the cigarette holder in the early days, the cackling laugh. Um, and then after her, Toady Fields and especially Joan Rivers are much more like contemporary comedians talking about the world in front of them, what it's like to be a woman, um, modern mores of fashion, of, of the, the gender gap, of, of raising children, things of this nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, prior to the women in this book and including some of the women in this book, women had to put on some sort of persona to be accepted as comedians usually it was stupid sexless right unattractive so moms mabley you know started dressing as an old granny walking around the house when she was in her 30s early 40s <laughs> minnie pearl who was college educated uh sarah collie became minnie pearl the rube so she could work on the grand old opry um phyllis diller you know as i say doing the garish things to herself but only when comedy started changing as a as a genre in the late 50s with the arrival of the t- likes of uh, Lenny Bruce, Mort Saul, um, the early Bill Cosby, not the later awful Bill Cosby. Yes. Um, I think he, he probably was always awful, but go yeah, ahead. Yeah, well, I'll, 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 <laughs> I agree. Uh, I, I reckon that. That was... Uh, we just didn't know. Yeah, yeah. It was... A, it was a, you know, I, I someone approached me years ago to do a Bill Cosby book, and, and this was well before the court cases, and I did one day of research online, and I said, <laughs> I'm sorry, I am not going to be the guy to break this story. It's not my... Someone with legal expertise needs to write this book because this is a landmine, uh, a minefield, and um, I'm, it, I'm, glad, I'm glad it came out, and I'm glad I didn't write it. It's funny the things we choose not to work on, you know. I mean, I remember I remember covering uh, a Bob Durogue, Dave Frischberg concert, and Dave was was had Alzheimer's, and he was he he couldn't remember any of the tunes, and this was in a, in a concert, and I just said, well, I'm not, I'm just not going to write about this. I'm just no, I don't I don't need to write about this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that happened to me a couple of times with films. Um, there, you know, when I was writing reviews at the Oregonian, there were you know, small movies or local movies that really were not good, and I just couldn't see uh, using the uh, elephant gun of the Oregonian to shoot a mosquito. Right. Sometimes I assigned it to a colleague. Sometimes we just covered the thing as a listing, saying it was happening, but not you know, offering any adjectives as to the quality. Um, And, you know, then you get into another situation where you actually meet the people. You know, you're at a film festival and you come out of the movie and there's the director who sees the press badge on you. And so what do you think? Oh, I hate that. You know, I always, my way out of that was always say, it's beautifully edited. I don't think anyone really knows what that means, but... Those in the know think, yeah, that's what that's what makes a movie—the editing. 
Jeez. Um, you have a, 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 a chapter here on the BAUDS, B-A-W-D-S, and those are always interesting. I have a bunch of Rusty Warren records. Ah. And they're fascinating. Fascinating. The woman sold millions of records. Yeah. Um, she... She was, uh, you know, she she did a cabaret act. She started as a pianist who sang songs, and then some club owner said, "You should you should sing song parodies." And she didn't even know what that was. <laughs> she had been trained at, at um, uh, the Berkeley Conservatory of Music and had performed with Arthur Fiedler, um, and she became a lounge pianist and then a singer. And she was an attractive woman, and she started singing lewd parodies of popular songs, uh-huh. and. She was recorded on a legitimate record label. Um, a lot of the artists who I write about were recorded on underground labels because their humor was kind of bawdy or outright profane. Right. And Rusty's was always the, the this clean side of, of vulgar. You know, she was the stuff that you read reviews in Variety and Billboard in 1962 and it said should be kept out of the reach of children. And there, you know, the <laughs> no word on the record is knockers. Knockers um, up. Knockers up. And these records sold millions of copies a yeah, year. Yeah. She was on the Billboard top 10 for the years of 1962 and 1963. Wow. Uh, along with the likes of Sinatra, Ray Charles, <laughs> and soundtracks to Sound of Music and, and Camelot. Um, that's how popular she was. And then she was completely forgotten. You know, uh, if you if your work was not to be dirty by 1965 or 66, the culture had passed you by. Um, people were able to say on stage things that you were afraid to say, you know, for fear of being raided uh, <laughs> just a few years prior. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. uh, Rusty Warren, Bell Barth, uh, whose whose records were in my house growing up. Those were completely un- under under the table records. Um, Rusty really? was sold in the comedy section. Bell Barth, living in New York, I had to go to Times Square to the stores that sold records under the counter to yeah. get a Barth record, and they were outright vulgar. Uh, they they things that we would not say on this podcast because they're beneath us, Tom. Oh, we can say anything on this podcast. Well, they're beneath me. Oh. <laughs> Well, okay. The, no, I don't think any. any I, I don't think. Well, you know, I, I've been. In, I was in a couple of John Waters movies, so. Yeah. I don't think there's a whole lot that's beneath me. The really <laughs> dirty one was a woman named Pearl Williams. Ah. Pearl Williams' uh, most famous LP was called "A Trip Around the World Is Not a Cruise." <laughs> <laughs> and and that was the sort of the intellectual high point of the enterprise. That's uh, funny. Real, real, you know, and and these women could play music. If you went into a night, you know, an old time nightclub, and they were at the piano bar and they were playing, they could sing. They had repertoire. They they were true performers, but they never got a break, so they veered into something else. And it was one of the most successful strains of comedy for women in the early 1960s. Well, women were were expected to have a musical um, uh, part of their acts, weren't they? That's right. And Phyllis Diller, who was a musician, uh, trained, collegiately trained musician, performed music early in her career. And then later in her career, when she was a superstar, she started performing at Pops concerts with orchestras and she could legitimately play a Beethoven concerto. She had to do a lot of practice. 
and eventually she gave it up because it was taking up more time than than it was worth to her. But she performed about a hundred concerts all over the world. Uh, Joan Rivers sang early in her career. Tody Field sang on and off throughout her career. Yeah. Elaine May did not sing, but Elaine May did characters. Um, uh, Minnie Pearl had a top ten uh, hit on the Billboard country charts, which was sort of like a, a response song to a song about a truck driver who had to leave his wife and children behind. So novelty record Moms Mabley recorded music with Pearl Bailey. They sang uh, mm-hmm. Saturday Night Fish Fry mm-hmm. and had a modest hit in 1948 or so. So they all did that. And, and it's a truism of the business. If a woman got on stage in 1956 with a microphone in front of her, she was expected to sing or take off her clothes. Yes. Maybe both. But she was not expected to stand there and tell joke, 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 or do characters. If she did a character, it was often in the accompaniment of a man, and he was the straight man, and she was the clown. I think Gracie Allen with George Burns or Lucille Ball with Desi Arnaz. Mm-hmm. These women that I wrote about performed in one, as they say in the business. They were on stage alone, with the exception of Elaine May, but she was inventing something that you needed a partner for. And they did comedy when everyone expected something different from them. I also don't think they knew about each other. I don't think Moms Mabley, Minnie Pearl, and Jean Carroll, the three oldest performers in the book, would have known of each other's existence. Moms played for black audiences in black theaters in black parts of town. Minnie played the honky-tonk and country fair circuit and the Grand Old Opry. Jean Carroll was in nightclubs in the Borscht Belt. And showbiz didn't crisscross that much in, in, in the 30s, 40s, early 50s. So these women were, were legitimately forging ahead thinking, I am the only one. And, you know, uh, they didn't watch, they didn't see other people on TV because they were always working. Yeah, and, and if there was TV, they would have been surprised to see someone. The one who was successful on TV to begin with was Jean Carroll, a completely forgotten woman. Yeah. Jean, Jean Carroll was doing solo stand-up in, during World War II. Hmm. Um, only Moms Mabley predates her doing solo stand-up on the stage. And Jean Carroll happened to be married to the head of a talent agency, a man named Buddy Howe, who was first her straight man in the George Burns Gracie Allen formula, and then her agent and manager when they were married and he went into the agenting business. And he was the president of the agency and the dean of the Friars Club. So he had two uh, muscles with which he could lift her career. Mm -hmm. And she was one of the first performers on The Ed Sullivan Show and one of the most frequent performers Mm -hmm. because Buddy Howe, her husband and agent, always found out on Saturday morning if there was a vacancy on the show because someone got sick or their flight was, was scrapped or whatever it was, and he'd say to Jean, you know, get dressed, you're going on Sullivan. And she'd show up and she'd do her, you know, three, five minutes. She was on Sullivan a couple of dozen times. But she retired from the business before any of these other women broke in. And she she gave it up to have a private life. Uh, she had money. She lived in homes on Park Avenue and in upstate New York and in Miami. She had, you know, Picassos on the wall and couture <laughs> in her closet. And she simply stopped doing it. Wow. You know, um, of all of these uh, comedians, the one I, I never think of as 
a joke teller is Elaine May. Everybody else told jokes. Right. And Elaine May, she's a special case in this book for, uh, you know, the main reason that she performed with a partner, Mike Nichols and May. But Elaine May was in the ground floor of the creation of comedy improv Mm -hmm. at the University of Chicago, the Compass Theater and the Second City. And Elaine May, by almost universal recounting, was the smartest, brightest, fastest writer and performer in the troupe, which Mm. included Mike Nichols, which later included Stiller and Mira and a million people who've come through Second City. But talking about these very early days of Second City, Elaine May literally sat and codified the sort of templates of improv that are still done to this day. Wow. And she performed them with Mike Nichols at a level that still to this day seems extremely high. Mm -hmm. If you watch Nichols and May, they're on YouTube. Um, I'm going to be sharing on my social media in the coming weeks a Spotify list, uh, including some tracks from all these women. But there are Nichols and May tracks on it. She's just brilliant. And these things were not scripted. They were developed on stage. They wound up repeating them uh, with variations sort of in natural time. Nichols and May were on Broadway, just the two of them, no one else, no band, no, nothing nothing supporting them uh, in a Broadway theater in, in the early 1960s, sold out shows for you know, almost two years. Mm-hmm. And they did a thing on the stage on Broadway that no one had ever seen outside of Nichols and May in a nightclub. Mm-hmm. For their encore, they would ask the audience to name an author, a genre, and a last line. <laughs> and they would do an improv. And it could be like, you know, Jack Kerouac, mystery. It was better in the laundry, Alan. You know, that, <laughs> that sort of thing. And they would do a three, five-minute improv, you know, hitting all those marks. And they did a different one every night for almost two years on a Broadway stage, the Golden Theater, a big house, like 1,800 seats. That's amazing. And this is well before the sort of skit comedy that we're all used to seeing from shows like, you know, First Laugh-In, Saturday Night Live, all all the derivatives thereof. Mm -hmm. So Elaine May is in there, even though she's not a stand-up, she is a crucial figure in the history of comedy. And then later became an important and much maligned and underrated film director. She's a fascinating woman. I'm very glad to know that someone out there is writing a biography of her because as I was working on this, I kept thinking, you know, there's a whole book in Elaine May. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And still the the man got the first billing. Right. (laughs) And, you know, it's not alphabetical order. It's not the order of talent. This this should be said. The the secret of Nichols and May. May was the wild genius. Nichols was a born director, and he could direct a scene that was being written live on stage while he was in it. Wow. He could steer her, and she would shock him. And he managed to hold character and see where she was headed and do something with it. So he became – and that guy won like – I think in his first four plays, he won three Tonys for directing. His yeah. first movies, he was nominated for Best Director and won Best Director, one of them. Uh, he was Mr. Success, according to Paris Match Magazine, 
uh, after they broke up. And that same year, Life magazine ran an article called Whatever Happened to Elaine May? Oh, geez. So once once they were split, she was, con you know, consigned to the junk heap. She was considered, you know, a perfectionist, too demanding, shrill. And he was, you know, feted and, and, and gloried everywhere. Were they equals when they were performing together? I think so. He's very funny. You know, the hardest job, making people laugh is hard. Being the straight man is really hard. Oh, yeah. You have to be yeah. equally funny. The, 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 the classic, you know, Desi Arnaz was a very funny man. Dean mm -hmm. Martin playing opposite Jerry Lewis, a mm -hmm. very funny man. Mm -hmm. And the, the straight man needs to be able to hold their own. I think of two film performances all the time that I'm always impressed with. The attention and the Oscars went to Denzel Washington for training day, mm -hmm. but Ethan Hawke had to stand next to him for that whole movie and hold his ground. Mm -hmm. Similarly, in Rain Man, Dustin Hoffman wins the Oscar, but Tom Cruise has to play next to him for the whole two hours. Mm -hmm. That's a hard thing to do. That's very similar to being a straight man. So I think Mike Nichols, as a performer, is equally essential to, to, the, to the enterprise as Elaine May, even though she was... By his admission and the the account of everyone who saw them, she was the inventor. She was the one. There's a wonderful quote in the book from Edmund Wilson, the great literary critic and scholar, mm -hmm. who said, I have seen them perform a dozen times and I have no idea what Elaine is like. You had an idea what Nichols was like. Mm -hmm. Elaine was so chameleonic. She would get into these characters she invented on the fly and she would she disappeared. You know, one thing I, uh, I, I noticed was that so many of these comedians um, had to deal with so much failure at the beginning of their careers. I mean, jo Joan Rivers, had uh, uh, somebody convinced her to change her name to Pepper. Yeah, Pepper January. <laughs> um, comedy with Spice was the tagline. Um, yeah, Joan, Joan is the classic example. Joan Rivers became successful in one night. She was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. She was in the 12.50 a.m. slot, and she killed. And the next day, she was able to quit her job writing for Candid Camera. Huh. Um, but she had been in showbiz for a good 10 years before that. She was in a trio act, Jake, Jim, and Joan, that did a combination of folk music and comedy. She had performed at strip clubs. She had been a magician's assistant. She'd been in... Awful legitimate theater, off-off-Broadway plays, including one that uh, co-starred a high school student named Barbara Streisand. <laughs> you know, she, well, she didn't, had, didn't she bomb on the Jack Parr show? She bombed on the Jack Parr show, like, live in – he was pointing out that she was bombing. Jeez. Twice she bombed on the, the – you know, Hugh Downs was – the, uh, they, the the people who booked her the first time she bombed felt so bad that they gave her a second booking when there was a guest host, <laughs> and he didn't like her jokes either. And, <laughs> and that, but eventually Jack Parr had her on when she became famous. But she had this one night on Carson at the age of 31, 10 minutes, and that made her career. Wow. And it happened instantly. Um, and it's one of those things. It's like the Beatles appearing on Ed Sullivan. And in my mind, Joan Rivers is the Beatles of this book because uh -huh. she brings together all the strains that went previously. She had a persona. Joan Rivers is not the same woman as Joan Malinsky, 
which was her birth name. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there are there's a stage persona. She called the stage persona Rita. Rita was the sharp girl who dressed, who dated, who did all the things Joan wanted to do. And in her mind, um, that that was who she was on stage. She had the bodiness. She had the confessional stuff that and, and, and sort of psychological stuff that Elaine May was doing. So she brings together all the threads. She bursts on the scene and she's a huge superstar uh, very soon after her, her breakthrough on The Tonight Show. And she remained one for for most of the, you know, for the next 50 years. She was she was she had a very long career. She made a lot of money as a showman, as a, an entrepreneur. She, she was she was a heck of a character. Yeah. Hey, listen, before the time gets away from us, uh, you're going to be reading at Powell's City of Books. That's right. Uh, we're, we're at Powell's on Wednesday, April 6th at 7 p.m. 7 p.m. Pardon me. I'm going to be interviewed by Chelsea Kane, the great Portland uh, mystery novelist uh -huh. and a hilarious woman. Uh, in fact, I, I'm only speaking to funny women on this tour so far. I've got a <laughs> Zoom event with... Um, Will Durst's wife, Debbie Durst, uh, with KPFA Radio out of uh, Berkeley. I've got an event uh, in uh, connected to a bookstore in Delaware. Uh, you you know the region better than I. Re Rehoboth Beach. Rehoboth Beach, yes indeed. Rehoboth Beach. I've been there. Uh, browse about books, and I'm doing something with a, a local comedian, uh, a woman from that that area, and I love it. Uh, you know, there are three blurbs on the book. They're from three hilarious women, Margaret Cho, Rita Rudner, and Karen Carbo, former Portlander, currently living in the south of France. God bless her. <laughs> and um, I, having done this book for and about women is a tremendous opportunity. I've written so much about, you know, macho, ugly, crass men, Jerry Lewis, Mick Jagger, Frank Sinatra. Uh, <laughs> It's it's a joy to to say oh yeah these women they deserved they deserved their due. Well, when you first told me that you were doing this book, I'm just, I'm just, I just kept thinking to myself, oh, what about me, the Me Too people, and the and the and the the the, the deep feminists, and they're going to say, ah, oh, so what a man shouldn't write about these people. Have you have you gotten any of that? I have not, but there's an author's note at the beginning of the book that says right out, I know this. Yeah. I know that my I am a man. I am writing this book, but the two most important women in my life, my partner Shannon and my daughter Paula, have asked me for years when I'm going to write about a woman, and I've tried to create uh, projects about women specifically, and and have not been able to publish them uh, at the at the level I need to to work on them. You know, I could I could write a biography of Bridget Bardot or Sophia Loren on spec. Yeah. Would be yeah. three years of work and no pay. Right. I can't do that. Yeah. Um, so I had to find something that worked, and this worked. And it's also it's in my specific wheelhouse. I think there are any number of books about women in comedy that could be written, and there are several that exist already. But they tend to focus on women who came later, uh, starting with Lily Tomlin, Elaine Boozler, even Bette Midler. Uh, who who falls into the category of the bods, I believe. Yeah. But I wanted to do the women who cut the cut the big lumber out of the way before those women got there. The the ones who had nobody to follow. Moms Mabley, 
Gene Carroll, Minnie Pearl, Phyllis Diller. There was nobody in front of them who they could say, hmm, I can do that. That's how it's done. They were the ones. And they happened to be in the time frame that I write about. The Rat Pack, Rome in the 50s, swinging mm -hmm. London, that 50s, 60s post-war groove. That's that's my sweet spot. Yeah. So a combination of wanting to, to write about women and finding women who had been undervalued, who were in my wheelhouse as a cultural historian, uh, that's why I took the opportunity. And if there's better and more books to come along on these subjects, I'm going to be the first guy to buy them and read them. Why, that's what you are, a cultural historian. Kind of, you know, stumbled into it. Yeah. That's a, what, a, what a great title. You should put that on your business card. Oh, business card. <laughs> Remember those? I do. <laughs> I like that. I liked business cards. They, they gave you a certain, you know, uh, validity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I still have many. I have all the business cards that were ever issued to me. I never carried them around and gave them out, even when I was at networky type things like film festivals or <laughs> whatnot, you know. But but I do I do treasure the ones that have my name on them. Yep. <laughs> hey, listen, uh, Sean, what a great book. Again, of course. What's next? Well... I'm swinging back the other way. I'm doing a biography of a, uh, a, a an American macho guy. Ah. Actually, I've got two two projects in the works. I'm doing a podcast. It's called Glitter and Might. Nice. It's about the conflux of show business and politics. Ah. And each season is going to talk about a different either power broker out of Hollywood who had political sway or a political figure who rose with the help of showbiz people. The first season is about Lou Wasserman, who was the most powerful man in Hollywood for 50 years and got no credits on any film ever. Wow. And he was a political kingmaker, and one of his very first clients as a talent agent in Hollywood was a B-movie actor, a former sportscaster on the radio named Ronald Reagan. Oh, geez. And Wasserman managed Reagan's career in such a way that Reagan, after 30 years of their their uh, acquaintance and after the end of his performing career, could run for governor of California. And, of course, we know where he went after that. The irony being that Wasserman was a lifelong Democrat. He supported Jimmy Carter and Walter Mondale against Reagan. Uh. And yet the first person that Reagan took on a, a formal lunch with after he left the White House was Lou Wasserman. Wow. So, so when is this when is this podcast going to start? Uh, summertime, maybe fall. Uh, is it just you? It's just me. Um, it's it's produced by a company called Cadence 13. Uh -huh. And they do, a, God, any number of amazing things. And then I'm writing a book that will probably appear in two and a half years' time, which will be a biography of Clint Eastwood. Whoa. So... Whoa. <laughs> or, you know, it's like I got to do the women and now I have to do Clint. You, know? you do. You do. Huh? Man, what that's. We, OK, well, that's hopefully, it. hopefully we'll all still be alive and you can come back on this podcast and we'll talk about that. Certainly with, with the podcast and also with the uh, with the book. Yeah. Cheers. I'm, I'm, I'm always available. It's always a treat. It's all it is. Thank you so much, Sean. And, uh, uh, you know, best of luck and thanks for your time, especially. Thank you. And as we like to say at the end of these things, that's entertainment. You're supposed to laugh. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
I'm smiling. 